0: How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing great. I am doing great, man.
0: Oh, that's fantastic. Where are you from, and what was growing up there like?
1: So, I am I'm from Park Heights in Baltimore, and I always say that growing up there was uh, essentially like heaven and hell at the same time, man. You, you know, you grew up in a neighborhood where you see uh, the amount of violence. Uh, you know, I saw my first shooting before I was 10 years old when you deal with that right behind us was this apartment complex known as the ranch which was notorious for drugs violence everything that you didn't want to to live next to Uh, but even through all that vacant housing the over policing or under policing still had a neighborhood in the community that was very tight-knit it's like a family and still that way you know i'm still uh, friends with the folks that i grew up with that i lived next to went to school with that people that i went to school with from elementary all the way through high school and we you know that that community means so much and you know my family for the most part is still there we didn't realize until we got older we were oblivious to the things that were going on And most cases for us when we someone we knew died or was taken away from violence or someone parent od right so that it just puts you into a place where you have to grow up a little faster or a lot faster, to be honest, when you live in a neighborhood like that.
0: Mm, okay. And then do you know the like what the exact address of the ranch was?
1: So the ranch is, uh, I don't know. Listen, I'm from You ask me where it is, I'll tell you I'll Tell you how to get there. So the ranch was on Pimlico Road uh, in between uh, Cold Spring and Loyola Northway. And I lived at 2551 West coast spring so it was behind us and through the alley right there.
0: You touched on it in your first answer so growing up in Park Heights would you say the distrust of local law enforcement was that something ingrained in the community or were you personally impacted by the shortcomings of those public offices?
1: I always tell this story uh, and try to paint this picture for everyone and think about it if you live in Park Heights the world descends on your neighborhood or certain savages and made for prison. The rest of the year, you struggle to be even recognized as human as you by your own city, right? you are forgotten. I always talk about coming from forgotten Baltimore. And when you live in a neighborhood like that that has violence, and I think that you we could see the change really too, because I would say that as I got older, the distrust and the relationship between law enforcement and the community got worse as we as they turned to zero tolerance, you know, as I became like a teenager, is when it got hit its lowest, lowest point. Because we, you know, could just be outside and be pulled up. We're playing basketball and they come and pull a car right into the middle of the game on the church lot behind my behind my house. And then just, you know, demand demand, uh, that we get against the fence or tell them something or we're going to end up in the back of a wagon. And that just causes you to just change the way that you see see law enforcement, right? But we were living in that, unfortunately, living in that time frame. We had some uh, police officers in the neighborhood who, who were just the total opposite, who refused to do some of that stuff. But it was a definitely a strain, especially when they went to zero tolerance. It just changed the whole the whole way that that, that, that they operate and the way that the community up about all. Mm.
0: Okay. Did you ever have to uh take any rides down to the police station were you ever um actually put into the back of the wagon?
1: And we I put into the back of the wagon, but you you always to say that you had to have something made up in your head so that you could get out. Uh we fortunately I never had to go down to the Northern District or up to the Northwest District because where I lived was right on the line. So if you're on the east side of Pimlico, it's the Northern District. If you're on the west side of Pimlico, it's the Northwest District. So I fortunately never had to go beyond the back of the car or sitting on the curb or sitting in the back of the the truck. So I was fortunate because some of my friends were not.
0: let's talk about when you were in school. Did you participate in debate club or or Model UN? Um, And was it anything in school that sparked your interest in public service?
1: Well, by the time I was in in elementary and middle school, I already know that I wanted to to, to be in public service. Uh, Essentially, like I said, I always tell the story about asking my mom when I was like, she's seven, maybe six or seven, maybe, about how... uh, the things that were happening at the ranch and other stuff, how we would stop it from coming to, to directly to our block. And she said, if you wanted stuff to change, you've got to do it yourself. No one's coming to save you. In elementary, middle, or high school, I did not do a debate, even though my, my teachers at Mervo wanted me to do it, or Model UN, or any of that stuff. Uh, at Mervo, I was uh, on the student rep on the school improvement team. But the reality is my younger years were, were all about track. It was all about sports all the time, right? Especially once I got to high school, our track coach at Merville. We listen, we couldn't even participate in gym unless we were running. So uh we, we were we were very well regarded as Merville as one of the historically one of the best track programs in the in in the in the country. But uh, we were not allowed to participate in in other extracurriculars, but it was it still was a great thing. Listen, I wouldn't be talking to you right now if I wasn't a track and cross country runner at Mervo. That's the reality. Uh, that running at Mervo is the is the thing that changed my life. That's what I was forced into this program uh, called the College Brown Foundation my ninth grade year in Mervo because they wanted to test out how it would be for us to start to think about college immediately and even taking the SAT and PSAT. I actually didn't take the SAT after my 10th grade year uh, because we were able to start early and had scores. Well, put us well on our way to getting scholarships and things for college. So, uh, but I would say that, that when I got to St. Mary's college and became involved in the black student union and the SGA that's where I honed my skills, my service skills, Right, I always tell young people and students that my job today is really no different than it was when I was the president of the Black Student Union or on these multicultural boards at St. Mary's or on the programs board, just that my constituency has grown. I still have to do policy. I still have to think about the wealth and, and health and welfare and well-being of a constituency of groups, of a group of people. But now, instead of just either the black students or the folks in my building, or you know, at college, it's the whole city of Baltimore, and you can see, I and mean, when you go to a school like that, where I studied at the Center for the Study for Democracy, and you learn everything there is to know about policy, while simultaneously being able to learn and be pushed to learn about serving and the greater good, that's what what shaped me. Uh, shaped shaking me that raw that raw will to serve and that raw talent to serve, that's what molded it into uh, the person that I am today.
0: Do you feel like track is what like gave you the confidence to to push yourself and be competitive and to just always want more?
1: I always talk about Mervo and Mervo's track. We were like the Wu-Tang kind of <laughs> Like that, That's the reality, right? Everyone knows now when you think about the Wu-Tang Clan, you think about like these nine entities who are great on their own right, but they come together and form like Voltron. Form like Voltron,
0: yeah.
1: Yeah, they form a mega group that no one messes with that no one can beat. We were a super team before super team. You know what I mean? Mm. And when you get a group of folks like that, and it's really, we always say it, it's not just because we all like the Wu-Tang Clan. But it's about, it's about that brotherhood and sisterhood, too, right? It's about that being able to hold each other accountable. Like, when I think about people saying, well, who keeps you in check? Like, what makes you not change who you are, Good too big? I always tell folks, it's my family, and it's my Blue and coal Gold fans. It was instilled in us by Coach Hendricks, Coach Neil, Coach Vaughn, everybody that, yeah, you're great. You're good as an individual, right? But y'all are only gonna ever be as great as you can be together. And it's not good enough for you to go out and be the most successful if your brother, like if your relay mate is struggling. And that doesn't mean just on the track. That means in life. And that's what that's what I think pushed me and pushed all of us to be honest. Like now we still have those conversations. With people now know about these infamous uh, basketball games that me and my friends had because the son, one of them, oh, I didn't, One, of the son uh, came and covered it last year. When people first come to it, they're amazed. And they're like, man, I thought you said these are your friends. Like, all y'all do is yell at each other. And when the game's over, it's over. Like, we, you know, one, we all are extremely competitive with one another. We want to destroy each other. And we're playing against each other. It's over. It's over. And we have to be able to hold each other accountable. We did that in the classroom. We did that in the track. And now we do that in life because that's the only way. We know that we're always going to be seen as a unit. When You you know, when you put that, that blue and gold flag on, when you put that W, that Wu-Tang flag on, it's about understanding that you're representing something greater than yourself.
0: Mm, okay, really quick, who's your favorite member of Wu Tang?
1: My favorite member of Wu Tang is the RZA, man. You got it's got to be the person to pull it all together. That's like me, I'm the person to put it all together. You got to be the person that can get the two people in the group that can't stand each other to come together <laughs> and and be on the track, right? you that people don't think about this. Literally, Ghostface and Raekwon seem like as you. But not until this year when the show came out did people know that Ray Khan literally tried to kill Coach Fate.
0: Yeah.
1: Shout out his house. Like, to be able to pull them together, that's strength and power. So I would say the risk.
0: Okay, I can respect that. So let's talk about some early office positions you've held. And also talk about your path to president of the Baltimore City Council.
1: My first run for council was in 2011. Uh, after serving the city, I worked at big brothers, big sisters for a while, came, ran mentoring programs throughout the city. Then I, uh, worked, uh, in the city council president's office, the mayor's office in Rec and decided to run for office on my own right. Uh, at the ripe age of 27, I won in 2011, was reelected. And at that time, there were two members of the council under the age of boys, uh, out of 15. And now uh, there are nine out of, out of 15 that are under the age of 40. So being the, the, like the first to push through that wall is a, is something that has been, uh, I look back now as a, as a great accomplishment. But just being able to work this, stay focused, always been focused on uh, trying to change the way city government works, accountability, pushing open data, uh, passing the city's open data law, working require the police department to share open data, having the health inspection things that people now uh, live and die by when they go out to eat. Uh, having networking on those kind of things has been great. And then in my second term, I was reelected in twenty sixteen, man, just
0: now when I look
1: back that it's not about just being it being about just you, right? When I look back now, I think about people say, Well, how was it like being the youngest and all of these other things. And I always talk about like that first term, man, was long, it's lonely, right? Imagine me being on the council and aside from from my, my brother, Nick Mosby, and I'm trying to pass a law about open data. And one of my colleagues, no disrespect, at the hearing, and I love it to death, uh, the councilwoman inspector says to me, Brandon, can you show me how to put my email on this phone? how I, like how am I gonna have a honest, deep conversation about data and technology it's just not it wasn't gonna happen, mm-hmm. but also knowing that always like being I always tell folks, especially young folks and young black folks in particular, I was like listen being being the only one is never a good thing mm-hmm. right it's never a good thing it's not good enough it wasn't good enough for me to just be there by myself, or be there with Nick, and then Nick actually would end up uh, uh, moving on after running for mayor and then going to the state, right? I intentionally working to try to help other young Black people get elected, right? So when you think about then going to work and help my, work, the only elected official at the time uh, that endorsed my, my brother, Corey McCray, when he ran for delegate, right, and then Working actually, this is a unique thing that people say, Man, that was you. We people thought you were crazy. and when in in 2016, I actually, you know, I had a, a race, I had two people running against me, but I was really focused on trying to get some other folks elected. Like, uh, I was campaigning against some of my colleagues to help get Shannon Sneed elected and John Bullock elected because I knew that it wasn't, I had to use. My status, my stature, you know, in, in for the greater good. And I always say, like, they, like sometimes, listen, you—if you run, charge that door. Many times, the person is the first person to charge the door doesn't get in. But if you actually get in, then you got to hold the door open. And that was important for me as I worked through through, through that first term and into the second term, and was still able to. Do a lot and accomplish a lot, right? Like, accomplish a lot of, pass a lot of legislation and have a real focus on, on young people, too. Something that was missing in the city, you know, passing things like a municipal ID law, uh, decriminalizing the curfew law in Baltimore City, pushing, you know, the police department to do and operate in many different ways. People don't even think about this now, but in 2012, really 2011, but the, the investigation came back in 2012. In 2012, I had a investigation done into overtime fraud all the, uh, individuals who would later be mentioned in the Gun Trace Task Force investigation. Before anybody was thinking about that, they actually were called a different unit and They were the Violent Crime Impact Section. And, like, that's the kind of stuff that it's, it's hard to do on your own, man especially as a 27 year old black man, right? It's hard to do, if that, if I would have had that investigation done with the current council, mm-hmm. if, if that if that group had been there in 2011 with me, we might not even have gotten to the point where we had this big fallout with them because we may have been able to apply more pressure to change them then. Like mm-hmm. that's how real it is about being the only one, Like. People don't even know, right? Because it's different. You know, you're 27 years old. They're like, yeah, he don't know what he's talking about. But now they can't say that because now we changed the game, changed the mold. The, the road to president was much the same. You know, uh, we had an unfortunate thing happen with Mayor Pugh and all her discretions. And I don't like to put people down, but she has to suffer the consequences of that. And uh, uh, Mayor Young became the mayor. And they thought that, you know, it was a foregone conclusion that the vice president, who I love, Sharon Middleton, uh, would uh, would become the president. But as always, when you tell somebody in Park Heights that they can't do something, I'm going to prove to you that I can't and was able to, you know, a- acquire the votes. And we've been able to, in my now, over a little over a year of being president, we've been able to accomplish a lot. And we closed the Healthy Holiday loophole, change who had to, File ethics violence in Baltimore, remove this gag order thing when folks are uh, uh, victimized by police brutality. We're now going to require mayors to have a crime plans. We actually passed a law to add people who straw purchasing gun traffic guns into the city to our gun offender registry list. Remember the young man, Jordan McNair, who died at the University of Maryland because of issues with the coaching and staff. We passed now the George McNair Youth Protection Act that has all the, all extra regulations and requirements on coaches and volunteers dealing with young people. And I can go on and on and on and on. And those are just, like, some of the things that we are now doing to push to change how Baltimore operates. When you are as young as I am and black and you don't, one thing everybody will tell you about me, even, even my. My friends, my family, even my political friends say that Brandon is going to do what he thinks is right and in the best interest of Baltimore, no matter what anybody says, right? You know, they. it could be, you know, his dad, his uncle, you know, people like, for example, when we were going through some of the changes in minimum wage and all this other stuff, you know, all these crazy things that have happened, uh, I think are great things. You know, people will call mean, people that I know are business owners who have been from my friends. My friends have been, like, I can't afford to pay that. Like, I know it's the right thing to do. And but when you're someone who's principled in, in public service and elected service, you always are going to be a target, man. You just got to know. And especially if you're black and young, like, you're, I'm always going to be a target. I know that every day I wake up, think about it like this, perfect example. Uh, when I'm in this campaign for me, what's the only negative thing that they could come up with? Like, he's too young. I loved when someone would say that or one of my opponents would say that or one of their supporters would say He needs to, especially folks who have been in, in politics and government in Baltimore for some time, he needs more experience. He's too young. And then I would just flip it on a couple of responses to that. One, I'm pretty sick. Two, did anyone tell Martin O'Malley he needed more experience as he was too young? And he mm-hmm. goes, no, why did, you, why did you say that? I was like, well, he just happened to be 36 years old when he became mayor, and he hadn't been working in city government for 13 years. I was 23 years old when I came to City Hall. Now I'm 36. In what world does someone who has 13 years' experience, are they told they don't have enough experience? hmm Right? Then I say to them, like, well, did anybody tell John Yosheski Jr., you know, last year, two years ago, that he was too young to be the county executive of Baltimore County? Like, no, Bob. like, he just happened to be 36. And then this January that just passed, uh, Senate President Ferguson became Senate President at 36. No one said anything to them. What's the one difference between them and me? Mm. It's only one. It's only one difference, right? And you have to challenge people. Literally, uh, a, guy, a guy, my age, Pete Buttigieg, ran for president of the United States, mm-hmm. and there were people in the political establishment in Baltimore, and this is a this is a great inside story for you, who were having a fundraiser for him. And one of my friends worked on his campaign, and it's like, hey, you should come pass this fundraiser. I'm like, listen, you know I'm not endorsing the You do know that, right? And I'm definitely not giving him any money. Like, <laughs> it's no disrespect. It's no disrespect to him, but there's just too many up a candidate that you know. Yeah. He he that are way down at the he's way down the pecking order for me. It's no disrespect to the man at all. But I say I'll go. But I went for another purpose. Some of the same very people that were telling me that. I was too young to be mayor. They couldn't support my campaign or, you know, give me $10 for my campaign. Or they're giving Pete $5,000. And the look on their faces when I showed up and said, like, hey, man, no one thinks Pete's too young to be be president. (laughs) I know this is what I wanted for myself for a long time. That's why I've never drank. I never smoke. You know, I don't do any of that on purpose because, one, I want to be healthy. I know. I know what it's like to be someone in the public eye and in distress and be African-American and live in, in a country, in a city that, that that's exhausting on its own without adding extra health issues, right? And two, that I have to set a better example for those coming coming behind me and knowing that I can't screw up. If I mess up, then someone from a neighborhood like mine that looks like me, might not ever get a chance. The political establishment, which is funny because many people said to think that that establishment that they were supporting me, and I had to remind people, I said they supported not one, not two, not three, but four candidates. me. We won despite them. They were all with Mayor Young, and then they decided that he wasn't, knew that he wasn't going to win. Some of them were with, many of them were with Mr. Vignaraja. You know, many of them then jumped to to Mayor Dixon, and then infamously now everyone knows it. Some of them even started a a super PAC for Mary Miller that you know ended up being a racist super PAC. And I said, then what do you think that was about? I was like, well, the super PAC wasn't run wasn't going to run negative ads on other folks. It was going to run it on me. That's what they're afraid of. They're afraid of someone who doesn't cowpile, who will just Who's really, really willing to change the system? And we prevail because that's what the people want. So I'm
0: proud of it. Oh, absolutely. Uh, so I want to, I want to talk about, you know, Brandon Scott now. Brandon Scott today. Uh, first, I, I do want to congratulate you on your win in the Baltimore City primary race. I was one of the people who uh, cast my vote for you, so I, I was really uh, happy to see that you won. And I can imagine that it was a nerve wracking process. What was it like in the hours and minutes before you were announced as winner, looking at those polling numbers, and and what significance does your grandmother's front lawn hold for you?
1: Well, I think that for, for us, this is funny. We we knew we were going to win. So everyone on election night, people were like, oh, man, I feel so bad. I'm like, well, you guys, you do realize there's almost as many votes to be counted than there are that have been counted. And when my campaign manager the next day made that statement that we're confident that we're going to win, when the numbers are all catalytic, people thought he was free. But we didn't because we did the work. We talked using the networks, my national networks and people that I know in other places that, are, that have vote-by-mail elections. We went and actually talked to them about how they work, who votes when and were. We knew that the young vote would be the surge at the end. And we knew that it was in our favor the reality is is that for me though uh it wasn't nerve-wracking because i didn't have time to sit around and look at the voting numbers site all day every day we were in the middle of a budget season for the council so i had to work i had work to do i still have a job to do and actually when they officially said they called the election my campaign manager kept calling me, and i couldn't answer him because i was asking the department of public works about how they're going to fix the water billing system in, in their budget here. So that for me, it was remaining focused on the task at hand.
0: Next, I want to talk a little bit about your uh, your policies and uh, some of the literature that you've been releasing about what you would do uh, when you're elected mayor. So you want to take a data driven approach to crime, uh, but the revolutionary system of Comstat <clears throat> actually led to more police corruption and police downgrading crimes to make it seem like things weren't as bad as they were do you fear a data-driven approach might cause the uh, Baltimore Police Department to focus on stats instead of actual crime reduction?
1: We can't look at uh, 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 what happened without understanding the totality of what was going on. It wasn't just that they were focused on stats, because the reality is that we you, you have to do things on data. Everything that we'll do in city government in my, in my term will be on data is through a lens of equity has to be done that way has to be done that way because if not you allow folks to make decisions that wouldn't uh that won't be uh, based on how we actually should be moving forward but this is what i think has to happen one you have to have the levels of accountability that they clearly haven't had right uh two when you look at my plan is not just about data being data driven. It's also about being focused, right? We need to reimagine public safety in Baltimore and understanding first and foremost that it's not just a policing issue. That is something that has to has to uh, uh, can be considered and considering other things. Violence in Baltimore is a disease, it's a public health issue. It's a cancer that's been spreading in the city. For far too long, and what we have to do to deal with that is actually put these things in. When, you, when folks look at my, our uh, crime plan, uh, building public safety in Baltimore, it talks about the different uh, things that we have to do. There, right. First and foremost, uh, what you, what we should be doing is understanding that our police should be focused on. The most serious things. We know that most of the violence in Baltimore is done by a small group of people and other small groups of people. So, focusing in on uh, those most violent people, this phenomenon known as group violence reduction that's been successful in cities across the country is how we should be doing it. Focusing again, as I said earlier, on the flow of illegal guns into the city because you've never seen the police department say okay you've seen a thousand times in your lifetime they say oh we just stopped this big truck bus from the ships at the yard coming on 95 laying it all out on the table but you've never seen that with guns right we have to target that because if guns are coming to Baltimore and ending up in the hand of some young man in Sandtown, Texas, you know, that, that young man many times has never been to Northeast Baltimore, let alone to Texas, to get that gun. We have to hold those people responsible as well. But it's also about reducing what they have to do. Police should not be called out to the scene of mental health issues. We, they should not be called out to the scene. For example, in Charm City, the documentary that I'm featured in, you can see uh, uh, some instances of what I'm talking about, about reimagining what they're responsible for. There's a, a 911 call there where an officer goes to a 911, which is supposed to be for emergency. And this young this young lady, an uh, uh, older woman, is saying that um, Hey, my husband's cheating on me on Facebook and wants to like, get some help on blocking. That's not a police issue. They should be taking more of their minor crimes online or over the phone like cities across the country do. So, for example, in 2012, when I first introduced that idea to Baltimore, Charlotte was taking 10,000 calls for service online online, meaning that the person never actually sees a physical police officer, right? Uh, they still get the stuff they need for their insurance or whatever. We've had 800 of those in Baltimore this year only, right? Mm-hmm. That's the kind of stuff we need to change and reimagine mm-hmm. and then deal with the flip side, right? Uh, not just investing in the failure of our young people, right? As we talk about defund, it's about reallocating, uh, uh fully funding our schools making sure that we're doing entry in a different way why are we waiting for people to come home when we can be going into the jail using employment development to train them for jobs that are already here so when they get out they have to go back to the street like that's the kind of stuff thinking about substance abuse in a different way we lose more people to overdose than we do to guns but no one talks about it right looking at that from a harm reduction approach, pushing things like overdose prevention sites in Baltimore City, making sure that we are matching our CTE education with the jobs that we have today, making sure that we're focusing in on family strengthening training programs for our young people. We know by third grade, which young people are going to be the victim or the perpetrator of gun violence? If you invest in them and their families now, you prevent it. It's about reimagining all of it, but all of that has to be driven by data. But data has to be driven by people who actually want to operate and to be accountable in a in a way that is above reproach. And that starts with leadership, and that's why it's important to have folks like myself pushing
0: it. Okay. A follow up to that. What will you do to regain the trust of Baltimore citizens who have been victims of sexual assault? Uh, your, your policies and plans don't really mention what you'll do about the dozens of unfounded and frankly botched rape and sexual assault cases that exist in Baltimore City.
1: That to me is, is all in the same. Every single policy practice that we have in BPD. We know that it's going to have to be redone. That's why we have a consent decree, right? Uh, many people think about the consent decree and the policy reforms only in as like a racial bias, you know, police brutality kind of thing. But it's also about this. It's also about how they have uh, historically just pushed intimate partner violence off to the side and changing those policies, making sure that we have a department that that, that is actually trained in the best way, but also actually doing exactly how we should be doing things. We have an unfortunate incident over this this weekend where a young mom, pregnant mother and her toddler were killed, oh, right? Southwest uh, and, and Baltimore. Seeing how that happened, how that has, has grown out of some intimate partner issues, right? You have to be prepared and we will be under me. not declassifying or pushing stuff down we will take that just as serious as if someone's being murdered because that sometimes ends up in that, right? If we don't capture those things in the beginning, it ends up in that. And making sure that they are uh, treating that very seriously is a priority for me. And we're going to change it like every other policy and be very transparent about making sure that they're doing that for all the young women, young men who might be suffering through intimate partner violence right now that might hear this, speak up. We can help you. And to the young women and young men and young men, especially, let me be very clear, you don't own those young women—they are not their property. We cannot continue to have the violence and out against our intimate partners.
0: I want to talk about something that I noticed. A lot of other candidates for mayor didn't really speak on, but I thought that it was pretty interesting and actually very smart of you. You want to increase funding to Charm TV and use media as a tool for education and access instead of public relations. Do you have a roadmap for how you will accomplish this? Yeah,
1: I think that. Listen, I um. I think that Chong TV is a, is a great thing. It's something we'll be working on during the transition period. We have, we will have to build this a new way of doing thing as council president, right? I increase. Uh, uh, CHOM TV's coverage of council proceedings and broadcasting here so people can see it. Actually, I gave up council hours to the school system so that they could use it for digital learning. Uh, we set up the virtual meeting system in, in, in response to COVID. And a lot of these innovations we're going to keep in place because it expands access. Because as you know, in Baltimore, many people might have on TV and cable, but some people don't. And they've been able to call in on the phone, right? Like a lot of our grandmothers who call in and listen to council meetings and participate in things in that way. And we see a role for young people too, because if we want what I want it to be is about content that's city. We, we need to uh, be able to not only educate people about Baltimore, but also to showcase everything else about Baltimore. Stop allowing certain TV stations and all this other stuff to dictate what's happening or coming out as far as Baltimore is the viewpoint, but then have actual Baltimoreans and showcasing all the great things that we have there as well. And we're, 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 uh, we're reaching out to everyone to hear about ideas from that as, as we move forward.
0: I want to start wrapping up here, uh, but I have a question I want to ask that uh, I didn't list down. Um, do you have any idea who keeps on lighting off all these fireworks every night for like the past four weeks?
1: Everybody seems to be lighting them up, man. Everybody's lighting them up. And I just want everyone in Baltimore to know it's not just a Baltimore problem. Um, my friends in Philadelphia, City Council, New York, Boston, every city seems to be uh, dealing with this issue right now.
0: Mm, okay. So I always ask this question, and I know that yours is going to be very complex. What's coming up next for you, and uh, what's your plan for November?
1: Well, I think that, listen, I'm going to be real. After this week coming up, the first thing that's coming up for me is a vacation, a break. (laughs) Mental health is real. Uh, Being tired is a real thing, and I've been running this, running uh, uh, full steam ahead since February of, of 2019. So I got to take a break. I'm going to relax a little bit. You know, I got to finish out strong. We just finished the city city's budget this year. But now I got to, you know, finish out uh, some other stuff this week. And then man, I'm going to go off the grid. I'll be doing some camping, you know, some stuff like that to just be off the grid and, you know, relax, spend some time with my family, all of that. But that's, that's the first thing. That's on that's on the agenda for me, man. I gotta, I gotta take take a take a beat. You know what I mean? You gotta take a beat. And then you know, as we continue towards the, the general election, uh, I have policies that we have to finish. I got work in the council. I got a lot of uh, laws and things that I want to get passed to start to help build that new structure, build that new way for for Baltimore. Uh, we will be of course campaigning for the general election because we don't take anything, anything uh uh for granted and for me we're going to continue to do that uh, we want to continue to build this coalition we built a strong inclusion coalition that reflects baltimore we want to grow that i going to continue my work every day to fight for families developing a real holistic strategy to address imbalance. start that transition learning uh what's going on what's wrong in the city how we need to change things from a structural point of view and continue to rally the voters around our vision for a new way forward and the values of equity, transparency, and accountability.
0: How can people reach out if they have any questions or concern for the the city council president?
1: Yeah, so uh, if you have uh, uh, any legislative concerns or things right now with the government, you can just email me, councilpresident at BaltimoreCity.gov on the campaign side just send us an email brandon at brandonforbaltimore.com and all my social media is at council press p-r-e-s-b-m-s
0: awesome awesome uh anything you want to mention that we haven't already gone over
1: nope thank you just thank you for having me brother
0: yeah absolutely also really quick what's your favorite rizza album
1: uh oh the first one bobby digital man oh my favorite my favorite Wu-Tang album is without, is without a Question. The Purple Tape is the greatest Wu-Tang album of all time.
0: Okay, what's your favorite track? Mine is uh, Verbal Intercourse with Nas.
1: Aha, that, that is a good one. That is, <laughs> that is, I would say that that could be my favorite one, but uh, I think Criminology is my favorite.
0: Okay. Okay. Yeah, I can definitely get down with that. All right. I'm gonna let you get out of here. Uh President Scott, Democratic nominee. Scott, thank you so much for your time.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much, brother.